the Read to Lead podcast, episode 28. Hey there, this is John Lee Dumas, host of the Entrepreneur on Fire podcast, and you're listening to the Read to Lead podcast with my good buddy, Jeff Brown. Boom. Human beings are natural mimickers. We reflect back people's language, facial expressions, gestures, postures. It's how we actually understand people. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Hi, I'm Jeff. Happy New Year, where my goal for 2014 remains unchanged, to help you develop a more intentional and consistent reading habit, because I believe reading is essential to your success in both business and in life. And just like every week here on the podcast, we sit down with another successful and inspiring nonfiction author to talk about their latest book and some of my favorite topics, topics like leadership, personal development, career, business, entrepreneurship, and a lot more. Today's guest is one of my favorite authors. I've read his book, Drive, several years ago, also A Whole New Mind, Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future. And his latest book that came out about a year ago, but about a month ago became available in paperback, is called To Sell is Human, The Surprising Truth About Moving Others. I'm talking, of course, about Daniel H. Pink. He'll reveal the new ABCs of moving others. He'll explain why extroverts don't make the best salespeople. And we'll also talk about the fact that those statistics tell us that one in nine of us, in the United States at least, are in traditional sales. The reality is the other eight of us are in sales too. Daniel explains what he means by that in our conversation today, coming up in about 60 seconds. First, I want to remind you about the webinar that John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire and I will be hosting next week, Wednesday, January 15th. If you've recently launched or are considering launching your own podcast for your own personal brand or your business, you want to attend next week where John will pull back the curtain on Podcasters Paradise, a membership community of over 300 other podcasters and everything you need to create, grow, and monetize your podcast. Now, when you sign up for Podcasters Paradise during the webinar next week, a couple of really cool things happen. One is you get my month-long online Podcaster Academy course absolutely free. My course, a great compliment to John's, in that my course concentrates on the communication aspects of being a good podcaster. Plus, during the webinar, you'll be given a special promo code that gets you 40% off Podcasters Paradise. This is not being offered anywhere else. Only because you're a listener to the Read to Lead podcast can you take advantage of this deal. Again, just make sure you're in the webinar on January 15th. You'll get that special promo code for 40% off Podcasters Paradise. And even with that huge discount, you'll get my Podcaster Academy course absolutely free. To sign up for the webinar right now, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash webinar. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash webinar. And John and I hope to see you next week, Wednesday, January 15th. Dan Pink is the author of five books, including the long-running New York Times bestsellers Drive and A Whole New Mind. His books have been translated into 34 languages and have sold more than a million copies in the U.S. alone. Dan's most recent book, released last year, is called To Sell is Human, The Surprising Truth 
about moving others. The paperback version was released just last month, and Dan is our guest today. Dan, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Jeff, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, for many of us, when we think of sales or more specifically salesmen, I I was one once myself, including car sales for a couple of years, uh, we conjure up a a pretty ugly stereotype sometimes. And at best, we think of sales as sort of, as you call it in the book, the white collar equivalent to cleaning toilets. But you're convinced that we've gotten it wrong. Why should we look at the act of selling in a new light? Yeah, it's a real important question. Uh, I guess there are two reasons for that. Number one is that, uh, like it or not, we're all in sales now. Um, And I'm talking here people who aren't, who don't have sales in their job title or sales on their business card. Mm. Um, People who are accountants or or engineers or managers or nurses. If you look at what people actually do on the job, a big portion of it is kind of sort of like sales. Mm. They're persuading influencing, convincing other people. So you're on a job and you're pitching your idea at a meeting. You're a boss and you're trying to get people to do different things in a different way. You are uh, trying to get someone to come and work at your organization rather than somewhere else. And so so one reason is that like it or not, we're all in sales now. The second thing is that sales has changed significantly. Again, whether you're selling an idea, a concept, Uh, a way of doing business or a product or service. Most of what we know about sales has come from a world of information asymmetry, where the seller always had more information than the buyer. Uh, When the seller has a huge amount more information than the buyer, the seller can rip you off. Uh, This is a big reason why we think of sales as sleazy, because it comes from our experiences being buyers in a world of information asymmetry. But today, we don't live in that world of information asymmetry. We live in a world much closer to information parity. And that is fundamentally different. Again, just, I mean, I don't want, I don't want to sort of hit this, beat this horse too severely, but the big change is that we've gone from this world where buyers have not much information, not many choices, and no way to talk back to a world today where they have lots of information. Mm-hmm lots of choices and all kinds of ways to talk back. And that means that if you're selling, again, whatever you're selling, you can't be a sleazebag. You can't take the low road. You're gonna get found out. It's not gonna work very well. So you have to take the high road. So I really think we really need to recalibrate how we think about sales on these two dimensions. One, we're all doing it. Number two, we're doing it in a very different environment. When it comes to non-sales selling, as you've dubbed it in the book, Dan, what are the roles that entrepreneurship, elasticity, and what you call EdMed play into it? Well, I mean, those are those are the reasons. I mean, you know, you go to that first point about we're you know we're all spending a huge portion of our time on the job, persuading, influencing, convincing, cajoling, etc. Those are the reasons why we have a lot more people as small entrepreneurs, and and I know your listeners, many you have many entrepreneurs as listeners. Entrepreneurs sell. Period. Uh, they do a lot of things, but they sell. Uh, so that's one reason we have an explosion of small entrepreneurs uh, here in the United States. The second reason is elasticity, which I think is actually the really interesting one. In very stable business environments, roles within organizations are are fairly stable and fixed. You know, I do accounting, you do HR, she does legal, she does operations. And that's not the way things are are being organized so much anymore because it's so fluid. So the business environment is so fluid. And even the nature of a firm is, you know, less fixed and stable. And so what you have is you have this elasticity of, of, of skills where people are being asked to do multiple things. 
And inevitably, that includes a form of sales. There's some really, really interesting things going on that I've written about in this book. I think they're interesting. Um, <laughs> about, um, uh, companies, you know, big companies that have hundreds of millions of dollars in sales and no salespeople. And they say, well, the reason we have no salespeople is that everyone's in sales. So, you know, everyone's in sales, therefore no one's in sales. No one's in sales, therefore everyone's in sales. It's kind of this freaky world of elasticity. And the final one is, as you say, is EdMed. And that's if you look at the job growth in this country in particular, all the job growth has come from, not all the job growth, but the fastest growing category of, of jobs in this country is in education and healthcare services. Uh, education and healthcare, what I call EdMed. And those jobs are all about moving other people. It's all about, hey, get your class to pay attention, get people to learn uh, this particular uh, way of, of coding. Um, uh, healthcare is all about getting people to change their behavior. So these are the three forces that are really pushing us into this world where, like it or not, we're all in sales. Many expected the internet to adversely impact traditional sales, and that really hasn't been the case. Uh, instead, it's uh, played a large role in turning the rest of us into salespeople. That's exactly what happened. I mean, there were these predictions that the internet would, you know, this is the word, I mean, I'm sure you remember this word from 12 years ago, would disintermediate mm. salespeople, uh, make them obsolete. And, um, um, and it turned out not to be the case. Now, what it has done is that it's refashioned um, both traditional sales. So if you're selling cars uh, today, then you're dealing with customers who are incredibly well-informed in a way that back in the old days, and by the old days, I mean 15 years ago, back in the old days, they couldn't be. But the other thing is on this point about entrepreneurship is that, I mean, it's just amazing to me. I work for myself. I'm sitting here in my office, which is my converted garage behind my house in Washington, D.C. And when you look at the communications and computing firepower I have, like at my fingertips, in this case, literally, because I'm, you know, <laughs> I can put my fingertips onto my computer here. Um, it, you know, 20 years ago, whole companies didn't have this, like big companies didn't have this. And, uh, and so what it's allowed, you know, folks like me and, and you and others to do is, is actually go out on their own and become entrepreneurship. So as I mean, you said it perfectly, like this technology, you know, the internet, which we thought would obliterate salespeople actually turn more of us into salespeople. Mm. Well, part two of the book is the how to be section, and uh, Dan dedicates a chapter each to the new ABCs of selling, attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. Dan, I'd, I'd like for you, if you would, to talk a little bit about each one of these, starting with attunement. Share what attunement is and the research that led you to these three rules of attunement. Yeah, so uh, these three qualities are what the social science tells us are really necessary as the foundations for effectiveness in this uh, remade landscape that we were just talking about. And one, as you say, is attunement. Attunement is perspective taking. It's basically this. Can you get out of your own head and see things from someone else's point of view? Now, this is really important when you have much less, uh, whether you're, again, you're a manager inside of a company or whether you're selling something you know, explicitly, you have much less coercive power. You have less ability to force people to do things. And so in that world, you have to be able to understand someone else's perspective. And what the social science tells us, there's some great research on attunement perspective taking that yields, I think, some really practical things for people. One of them is when you're feeling powerful, your perspective taking skills really diminish. And so you need to be on the watch for feeling powerful. This is particularly true for bosses. 
who are trying to persuade, sell employees on doing things. Um, you, you know, when, when people feel powerful, evidence is pretty clear. They really stink at perspective taking <laughs> and that actually inhibits their effectiveness. So there are ways to sort of, you know, try to avoid falling into that trap. There's some interesting research on, um, on the difference between perspective taking and empathy. Um, one is real empathy is really about understanding people's emotional states. Perspective taking is about understanding really their thoughts and interests. And so it's a little bit more hard headed and that ends up being really effective. Um, that is, there's a lot of talk about emotional intelligence and empathy. And even I've written about, about that. And turns out that in, in, especially in a commercial context, really focusing on people's thoughts and their interests can be more effective. And the final one, which is just kind of freaky and and, uh, disturbed me a little bit is how um, effective some degree of mimicry is um, that human beings are natural mimickers that we reflect back people's language, um, uh, facial expressions, gestures, postures. Uh, it's how we actually understand people. Being a little bit more conscious of that it can really increase your effectiveness in moving others. So those are some ways to use the social science to get a little bit better, a little bit more um, muscular in your uh, attunement capabilities. Dan, what then is buoyancy uh, in this context and, and how can it help us handle rejection? Yeah, well, I mean, buoyancy is, is, is the second one. It's a two-man buoyancy and clarity, these three qualities that are so essential. I interviewed a uh, guy named Norman Hall, who has spent the last 40 years um, selling fuller brushes. People in your audience uh, uh, above a certain age will remember fuller brush men. Other people have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> but he's been selling brushes door-to-door in the business district of San Francisco for the last 40 years. And he said something that really stuck with me. He said, you know, the hardest part about being in sales is that every day, and this is his language, not mine, every day I face an ocean of rejection. That's what he says, an ocean of rejection. So buoyancy is like, what does the social science tell us about how to stay afloat in that ocean of rejection? And it turns out that that before, say, a sales call or an important persuasive encounter, that questioning your abilities can be more important than pumping yourself up, uh, more and more effective than pumping yourself up. Uh, it turns out uh, there's some really good research from Martin Seligman showing that one of the, the best predictors of success in sales is how people explain failure. And so Seligman talks about developing a certain explanatory style that allows people to recontextualize that failure, to explain it as less personal less pervasive and less permanent than they think it is. So uh, again, I think one of the one of the things that I've learned in writing about business and in writing this book is that uh, salespeople are far more courageous, like I'm talking sales salespeople, people with sales in their job title or on their business card are far more courageous than the rest of us. I mean, they deal with rejection every single day. <laughs> and a lot of us in other kinds of roles really don't have the thick skin or gumption to, to do that. But now when all of us are becoming in sales, we all have to get better at dealing with rejection because it's just part of the process. The good news is that 
as I said, you know, social science gives us some ways to get better at it. I was particularly fascinated about this idea of, of asking yourself questions versus the sort of the pump yourself up kind of a sta- kind of statements and how asking yourself questions causes you then to actually think about what the answers are. Right. That's exactly, I mean, that's exactly the, the reason. I mean, here's what the research shows. Like if you go into an encounter and you say to, your, you say to yourself, I got this, I'm all over and I'm, I'm going to do a great job. That's actually better than doing nothing. There's no question about mm. that. So it's not as if like, like sort of that affirmative, positive self-talk is useless. It's better than going in neutral, mm. but it's less effective in many cases than what's called interrogative self-talk, which is saying not I can do this, but can I do this? Because as you say, you have to start answering that question and that you begin coming up with the strategies, the practice, the preparation for doing a good job. Well, finally, uh, Dan, what is clarity in this context of selling and why is being a problem finder today more valuable than being a problem solver? As you know, a lot of sellers, uh, salespeople talk about, oh, I'm a good problem solver. I'm a good problem solver. Um, I don't sell. I solve problems. And that's cool. And I think there's some use for that. But what's happening today is that in a whole range of contexts, that if your customer or your prospect knows precisely what its problem is, they can find the solution without you. (laughs) They don't need you very much. Um, Where do they need you more? They need you when they don't know what their problem is or they're wrong about their problem. And so that's why the skill of problem solving, while still somewhat important, is less important, less valuable at least, then the skill of problem finding. Can you surface problems people don't realize that they have? Can you identify hidden problems? Can you look down the road and say, you're not dealing with this right now, but give it you know, three beats, four beats, and you're going to be confronting this problem. You get a, better get prepared for it right now. So um, I, I think that's a big issue in all kinds of white collar work that you know, existing, if we, if, we, if we have clearly defined problems, getting the answer to them are not that hard. What, where it's more difficult is that a lot of the problems we face are poorly defined, multiple possible answers, and it, we might not even be asking the right question. And, and, and it's people who can deal with th- that kind of problems are the ones who are really going to flourish, whether it's in sales or any other kind of white-collar endeavor. Uh, in the uh, final section of the book, part three, Dan goes on to talk about pitching and improvising and serving. Dan, you say the elevator pitch is outdated. Uh, when it comes to effective pitches, what what are some of the successors to the elevator pitch? You know, I, I don't I don't have anything against the elevator pitch. I just think it's a little twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Um, the and it was actually invented in the nineteenth century. You know, as you know, Jeff from the from the book, it's really rooted in what does the social science tell us, and you mm-hmm. can harvest the social science for some interesting new ways to pitch. And I tried to offer a bunch of them. Uh, for instance, um, I, I, it's kind of freaky, but. Uh, pitches that rhyme are more persuasive. Mm-hmm. It was a great piece of research from Lafayette College. Uh, they, they, they separated their participants into two groups. Each group was read a list of proverbs. And, they, and the question before them is, does, does this particular proverb represent an accurate assessment of the human condition? Something like that. And for the first group, they gave them proverbs that rhyme. Things like woes unite foes or caution and measure will win you treasure. And the other one, they got the exact excuse me, same proverbs, but in forms that didn't rhyme. So it's woes unite enemies rather than woes unite foes or caution and measure will win you riches rather than caution and measure will win you treasure. And um, it turned out that people who were confronting the rhyming proverbs found them more insightful. (laughs) Um, And when you go back to them and say, well, did the fact that they rhyme make any difference? They all say, oh, not at all. No, 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 no. (laughs) 
Um, but what happens is, it's fascinating. It, what, what happens is that rhymes increase what's called processing fluency. Uh, they go down easier. And when they go down easier, they process them better. <laughs> and so, I, I, you know, looking at this research, it, may, it reminds me why you, know, you teach kids about life and about reading and so forth at an early age with rhymes. It's Dr. Seuss. Or, you know, nursery rhymes, because it, that's a way to get early language learners to increase their processing fluency. And we don't use that enough. Sort of an, uh, similar to what we were talking about before, uh, pitching with questions can be enormously effective because it gets people to be more, a little bit more engaged to and possibly reach your conclusions on their terms. Mm. Um, I'm a big fan of the one word pitch. Uh, which is where you 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 think about your pitch and distill it to one single word. It's what a great ad executive in the UK calls one word equity. So that when people think of you, they think of that word. When people hear that word, they think of you. Uh, write a little bit about uh, uh, pitching based on the structure of Pixar films, the Pixar pitch. Uh, so it's some really really interesting practical stuff there. That that I mean, just personally, I found quite useful. When I first started reading in your book about the one word pitch, I thought. Does anybody really use that? I hadn't really thought about it, but then you, you had all these examples. I mean, uh, MasterCard. You know, yeah. You think the word priceless, you think MasterCard. But even even in a less kind of marketing way too. I mean, if I if you were to go out, you know, in Nashville or Washington or wherever, and and ask a uh, hundred people off the street, what company do you think of when you think of the word search? Ninety nine are going to say Google. Mm. You know, and so that's what it is. When people think of search, they think of Google. When people think of Google, they think of search. That's one word equity. Well, uh, moving to uh, the second one, improvising. Unfortunately, things don't always go as we plan for them to, and we have no choice but to improvise. How can understanding, though, improvisational theater, Dan, help us deepen our powers of persuasion? Well, you know, it turned out as I discussed, as I was researching this, that you know, I found that, the, as you say, Jeff, the principles of improvisational theater are really, really applicable to the world. This new world of sales. You know, the old world of sales was very much was was often very scripted. Um, if you go back and look at, you know, um, found some interesting stuff from national from NCR, National Cash Register, back the 19th century became the 20th century. Um, you know, the sales pro there was a great it was a great business breakthrough where this uh, the founder of that company would equip his sales force with these very elaborate scripts uh, like a play. Uh, so you, they would memorize the scripts. They would memorize even the stage directions. So they would point to certain things at certain moments. They would memorize the objections and then the, how to overcome those objections. And that scripted approach doesn't work very well because customers are coming to the sales process much better informed, um, coming with their own more idiosyncratic questions. And so it turns out that the principles of improvisational theater are incredibly useful for that. Uh, for instance, um, things like um, hearing offers. Um, when you, if you and I are on stage as improvisational actors, everything that comes out of I have to hear everything that comes out of your mouth as an offer. You have to hear everything that comes out of my mouth as an offer. And that idea of hear, I found that very profound. This idea of hearing offers, uh, even when what looks like people saying no or what looks like people saying, you know, um, trying to evade. That many times, not every time, but many times embedded in there is an offer. So listening and hearing offers is, is a really powerful concept in persuasion. Uh, another thing is, uh, you know, old principle of is saying yes and rather than yes, but. Yes, but ends up being a conversation stopper. Yes, and ends up being something that's a little bit more enhancing. And then finally, uh, a really important principle, again, go back to you, you and I, you and I are on stage as improvisational actors. My job is to make you look good. Your job is to make me look good. 
And the principle of making your partner look good is really important in any kind of persuasion uh, effort. So I found that really interesting because you don't, you know, it's, a, it's pretty far afield from sales and, and the hardcore business and social science that I typically write about. But um, uh, really learned a lot from a, a great improv teacher named Kathy Sallett, who I, I went to some of her courses. She really taught me a lot about how to use these principles of improv to be more effective. Uh, the final chapter, Serving, talks about a couple of a pr- uh, principles that are essential if sales or, or non-sales selling are to have any meaning. I'd love it, Dan, if you could share uh, examples of some of those who are doing a good job of making it both personal and purposeful. Yeah, let's talk about um, purposeful. There's some really interesting research out there that when persuading other people that appeals to purpose is something that we really leave on the table. Uh, we tend to think that pe- the only way to persuade someone is to is to appeal to their self-interest. Um, and that works sometimes. Um, Robert Cialdini, who wrote Influence, has some great research showing sort of appealing to social proof or what other people are doing is important. But there's an interesting line of research now showing that when you explain to people, for instance, on the job, why they're doing something, they do the job better. So there's a great piece of research uh, show, uh, of call centers at the University of Michigan where call center representatives, these are you know work-study students getting a salary, raising money for the University of Michigan. Um, that when um, they read letters from people who were on the receiving end of the money that was raised, they doubled their production. There's some other evidence showing that when you explain to people, you know, again, it's really just, a, it's, it's actually in some ways very simple. When you explain to people why they're doing something, they end up being more effective at it. So, I mean, even in, and there's some small, like if you, if you look at like, like a car dealer, um, you can, you, you become a better car salesperson if you get letters from people saying, uh, thanks for selling me that minivan. I never thought I'd be someone who would ever drive a minivan, but this minivan is awesome and it's changed our family, you know, um, and those kind of things, you know, actually improve people's performance because it goes to like, okay, why am I doing this in the first place? Uh, on the personal, again, you know, a lot of good evidence on uh, pretty commonsensical about personalizing things. One of my favorite examples is a restaurant here in D.C., Italian restaurant run by a wonderful guy named uh, Giuseppe Ferruggio. Um, amazing that a guy named Giuseppe Ferruggio would be in the Italian restaurant business. Um, and um, anyway, uh, what he has in his restaurant uh, which is maybe two and a half miles from my house, it really blew me away the first time I went in there. He he um, he has a sign up there uh, where he says, you know, if you had anything less than a great experience here, call my cell. And it has a photograph of him and it has his mobile phone number. Uh, so he's really, you know, most of us don't have the guts to say, call, you know, we like to say sort of this more abstract, I'm accountable, you know, but if you really want to be accountable, you say, call myself, you have a problem. And so some really lovely things in there on, on serving. And, and I guess it goes to the, the, the main point. And, and one reason I called the book to sell is human is that I really think that today the ability to be effective in this world depends on these fundamentally human qualities. And at some level, looking at sales as an act of service, not only not 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 service in the kind of customer service sense only. And, you know, getting your phone answered in two rings or having your pizza delivered in 30 minutes or less, but really service in a more transcendent sense. So, you know, are you actually improving somebody's life? And if you use that kind of standard, you know, like if the person buys what you're selling or, the per, you know, whether you're selling your idea or a way of doing things or a Prius, uh, if the person buys what you're selling, you know, will their life be better off and will the world be better off? And I really think if you use those criteria, 
you're going to be pretty effective in this. One of the key takeaways uh, for me, Dan, was uh, going back to our conversation about information parity and and just some of the examples you lay out of industries that are embracing that and, 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 and some examples of some in the same industry that aren't. I think car sales was a good example. And now CarMax has sort of changed the right. way people buy cars because they've embraced information parity. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, CarMax is a great example. I, I spent some time there. And one of the things that was so interesting to me just sort of physically was that, you know, you typically you go into a, a business setting, a business setting in the sense that you're a consumer and you're dealing with a business. So you go into um, there's some uh, right near me. I, there's a, my running route here in Washington takes me by a couple of uh, retail banks uh, that have big windows so you can see inside. And so people, I guess, come in there for advice or loans or whatever. And so they come, they sit at the desk and the, the person, the loan officer or whoever has a computer, like I mean, all of us have computers. When you look at the screen, the screen is facing the loan officer sitting at his or her desk. And that's how it usually is. Mm-hmm. Um, you come into my office and sit across from my desk and I'm going to be looking at my computer. And what they have at, at Carmack, which is so interesting, is that the computers are positioned so that you and I are on opposite sides of the table. But the computer, if you think about four sides of a, of a rectangle, you and I are on the long side, each on the opposite long sides of the rectangle. But on one of the short sides of the rectangle is the computer facing so both of us can see it. Mm. So, you know, that's to me information, par- the sort of visual depiction of information parity. And, and that's really where the world is going. Well, in that this is a podcast that encourages intentional and consistent reading, I was wondering if you had a couple of books you've read in the last few years that have had a great impact on you, and if you could share maybe how or why they impacted you as they did. Yeah, so many great books. I mean, I, I just think there, there are a lot of great, there, there really are so many people working on so much great stuff out there. And so, let's, I, mean, I mean, even thinking in the last year, I mean, if you had to go, if I had to go, you know, more broadly, uh, the books that had the biggest effect on me were probably... Uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning mm. um, and, um, you know, a classic must read book. Uh, I'm a huge one of the reasons I got interested in writing about work was as a kid reading Studs Terkel's book, uh, Working. Um, and so, you know, those two things are lodestones for me. But even in the last year, so many great books that I've read. Uh, Adam Grant's Give and Take, I think, is a brilliant book. Yes, uh, showing the importance of you know uh, this more generous um, reciprocity style. Uh, I really love the Heath Brothers' uh, latest book, Decisive. Mm-hmm. Really helped me in my decision making. Um, there's a, a book that I read even just a few weeks ago called The Success Equation, uh, looking in a very analytical way about how to disentangle what is skill and what is luck. There's a book called Scarcity by um, an economist at, at Harvard that, uh, that is um, about how basically people who, who, who don't have a lot of choices, who don't have a lot of uh, that, that, that sort of poverty and scarcity in that sense actually diminishes your mental bandwidth and makes it harder to make good choices. Really, really important book. Um, you know, I love the book The Sports Gene by David Epstein, um, showing that, you know, as hard as it is to deal with. Some of us, you know, some ability is innate mm. and we can't get around that. Uh, I love Carol Dweck's mindset. Uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's flow. Those two books are lodestones for me. Mm. Anyway, sorry for the long answer, but, you know, <laughs> um, I, you know, I really think that um, the way that I read and the way that I process stuff is that I think there, there, there are ways to take nuggets and, 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 and pieces from all of these books that people are making these great contributions for. And that's how I hope that people use my books. That is, they don't take a book like A Whole New Mind and say, I'm going to run my entire life based on, you know, based on this. Mm. 
or you know drive or to sell as human but i'm hoping that that each individual comes to the book and find something in it that's relevant or some things in it that are relevant to his or her life and then bring those in and, and so you know as a reader that's what i try to do so you know my life is is fast the way i lead my life is is affected by dweck and chick sent me high and 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 grant and and uh in toffler and frankel and turkle and all those other things that are you know little pieces of which constitute who i am you mentioned uh, decisive i'm actually uh, reading that as a part of a mastermind group i'm in and uh, adam grant who you referenced is uh, scheduled to be on the podcast in the spring so really looking forward to to that and i haven't read all your books but i have read the last three and they're among uh, my favorites Dan. they really Thanks. really are uh, before we wrap up what's on the horizon for you tell us what we should be on the lookout for next from dan pink I wish I knew. Um, um, I'm actually doing something uh, that I haven't done before that I've been wanting to do for a while is that I'm going to take uh, in the second half of this year, uh, I'm going to take a six month sabbatical Oh, okay. to sort of get off the treadmill a little bit and really focus on um, what kind of groovy new cool projects can I, can I work on? I got a bunch of ideas out there, but uh, I don't really have the bandwidth to, to think about them seriously. So I'm going to take a six month kind of strategic sabbatical. And at the end of it, I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to announce some really, really cool things to um, that I hope people will find interesting and useful. Well, when I launched this podcast uh, about six months ago, one of my early goals was have Dan Pink on the podcast. So we okay, have accomplished Okay, I'm to give you another business lesson. <laughs> Aim higher! <laughs> Well, Dan, thank you so much uh, for your time today. I know listeners are going to get a lot out of it. We really appreciate uh, what you've had to share, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. Thanks so much for having me on the program. It was great. If you desire to touch base with Dan, let him know what you thought about today's podcast episode. You can shoot him a tweet. That's at Daniel Pink on Twitter. Now, on his book covers, it's Daniel H. Pink, but don't put an H in the tweet because it'll go to somebody else. Trust me, I know. At Daniel Pink on Twitter. To comment on this episode and check out any of the resources mentioned today, including the 10 books Dan talked about, my goodness, got your reading cut out for you now, go to readtoleadpodcast.com forward slash 028 for episode 28. To get my Podcaster Academy course for free and 40% off Podcaster's Paradise, be sure you're attending the webinar Wednesday, January 15th with John Lee Dumas and I. To register for it right now, readtoleadpodcast.com slash webinar. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash webinar. If you've yet to rate the podcast, what are you waiting for? It's 2014 already. You can do it right now. This actually helps keep the podcast visible and findable by new people. And if you give it a five-star rating and leave a review, I'll be sure and mention you by name in an upcoming episode is a small way to say thanks. How cool is that? To rate and review the podcast, visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes or readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher or both. Hey, the more the merrier. Thank you to David Beeler, who is my brother-in-law but not biased, a five-star rating and review. Cheryl B. I'm not even going to try to pronounce Cheryl's last name. Thank you, Cheryl. Kirk Barbera and R. Hinton, all with five-star ratings and reviews since we last talked. Well, that's going to do it for this week. And you've, you've heard me mention several times uh, that, uh, you know, this is a very male-heavy show. I, I'm obviously male, uh, and most of our guests are male. But we've had a couple of female guests, female authors on the show. Let me just say that in January, the females are coming out. Look out. Next week, it all begins. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com and chat with other members at facebook.com slash readtoleadnation. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Gotta feel that beat, and we can ride the boogie. Share that beat or love. I'm gonna rock with you all night. Dance you in with the sunlight. I'm gonna rock with you all night. I'm gonna.